Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lee Natero, and I'll be your host tonight. We're going to be hearing from Nolan Fossum. Before we begin our session, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about the Global Math Department. The Global Math Department is an organization that is run entirely by volunteers. We've been leading free math PD webinars since 2012. The Global Math Department is closing up shop at the end of this season. Tonight's session is our third to last webinar. If you'd like to connect with us, you can definitely reach out to us on Twitter or email us at globalmathdepartment at gmail.com. Uh, before I turn our session over to our presenter and introduce him, I'd like to explain how our webinars work. Our webinars are recorded and are available about 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The Global Math Department community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. And if the chatter gets busy, I'll be sure to catch your questions for our presenter. If you haven't already done so, please introduce yourself in the chat, telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. And I will say I see lots of familiar names in the list of participants this evening. So feel free to type in the chat telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. And if you're just joining us, feel free to click on the handouts tab at the top of the chat to download the slides from today's presentation. Our webinar speaker is Nolam Fossum, and he will be sharing on the topic grading and assessment and more using story as a lens. Nolan has been a mathematics teacher and leader for over two decades. His teaching experience ranges from middle grades through university. Nolan began facilitating professional learning experiences for teachers with the Irvine Math Project in 2004. Nolan authored, authored a chapter in the 2022 NCTM publication, Success Stories from Catalyzing Change. Nolan's greatest takeaway from that time is that student engagement and motivation are highest when teachers center culture and relationship building. Nolan loves conversations about disrupting, dismantling, and reimagining the school experience, and especially the mathematics classroom. All students are brilliant, and we have the power and charge to help every student realize their genius. And now I'll be turning the presentation over to Nolan. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, everyone. It is absolutely my pleasure and honor to be here with you all this evening, uh, especially here in the final few episodes of the Global Math Department. Um, I'm Nolan Fossum, as has been mentioned. I'm down here in San Diego County, teaching at Mount Miguel High School. Um, it's my first year at this school. So some of the things we'll be chatting about tonight, I'll be sharing experiences while I'm still learning about this school and its culture. Um, and some of the things will be from, you know, my more various other experiences. I've had the opportunity to work in a lot of different settings uh, between high school and college, often simultaneously. Um, but I'll be speaking, especially tonight, from my mostly my high school experience, I would say. I hope you're all ready to chat. I've got so many questions and I'd love to get your feedback on a lot of things. You can see my uh, Twitter handle and my email there. Feel free to connect with me 
And I think Lee mentioned that I've got these slides in the handouts tab, so you don't have to worry about jotting anything down or taking screenshots. You can get all those things there as well. I'm coming to you from the unceded lands of the Kumeyaay and Luiseno peoples. And um, it's helpful for me as I think about uh, teaching in this area and the history, the rich history of this land and the people who have governed this land for thousands upon thousands of years and who still live and tend to the land. Uh, it helps me to think about um, ways we can do right by the land, by the people who are the rightful uh, possessors of this land and caretakers of this land. It helps me to think about decolonizing my own mind and decolonizing the school experience. So I'm grateful for the opportunity um, and the heritage that I continue to learn more and more about. Okay, so I had put in the original uh, description of this a claim that said there's no denying it, teaching is different now. And I really don't know if that's um, the way everybody feels. Uh, that's I feel that way myself. And so I decided we should start with a little poll. And I really only had three choices, but I felt like a poll should have four. So choice D, um, I don't even know, man. It's just kind of like <laughs> if all and every and none of the choices, or it's just too complex to put, or maybe it's something like teaching always you can go with D, but if you feel like A, teaching is different now and it will never return to what it was, or B, teaching's different now, but just for now, we're, we're on our way back. Or maybe C, teaching was different for a while, but we're pretty much back to where we used to be. Or just, I don't even know, man. I would love to see your thoughts. I see a lot of A's and a couple of D's. I'm feeling those things as well. Thanks, everybody. Well, I wasn't sure um, how to proceed uh, depending on what the variety might be. Uh, looks like there's a lot of uniformity here. So that's pretty pretty awesome. Um, certainly open to differences of opinion. If you're feeling like B or C, don't hesitate just because um, there's a lot of folks that are feeling like A. I'm pretty much feeling like D all the time, especially this time of year. I'm sure you're in the same situation. We went, came back from spring break and now we're in state testing. And it just kind of feels like I don't even know man all the time. All right, well, thank you, folks. Um, it, I have this weird condition where I'm working on a presentation for a long time, but all the things that are happening in the present experience are sort of informing my thinking about it. And so uh, what sort of, let's say, formed some of the direction that we'll be moving tonight and thinking about is kind of a little bit of stuff that's been in the news. And by the news, I mean things probably I've seen on Twitter. So here's two um, articles that came up within the last week on my Twitter feed, both incidentally from inside higher ed. Um, just throw up a, an emoji or something in the chat if you've seen one or both of these cycling around. And I'm offering these up as a paired text in uh, not necessarily because they're um, antithetical or completely different perspectives or that it's sort of a one versus the other, but they definitely get us to this idea of the lens of story and stories that are are sort of in the minds of educators, in the minds of the public, in the minds of anyone who has um, some kind of interest in conversations around education. I'll just give a little brief summary um, of a couple of factors that I think are relevant for our conversation tonight. Uh, the top one here, getting a grasp on grade grubbing. Not a huge fan of that title. Um, 
but it's sort of, I would say this article was written as a response to a circumstance that we all recognize and feel, which is we made a lot of adaptations and changes in our policies, even from a district level um, in 2020, 2021, uh, especially while schools were closed and the pandemic has been raging. Um, and so the author is sort of taking a perspective that now that we're sort of on this end of the raging pandemic, uh, I suppose that's a phrase in quotes because there's varying opinions about where we are with all that. But let's just say schools are open, kids are back. Um, we're sort of in a predicament, according to this author, of how do we sort of recapture the sort of spirit of where we've been or where we want to be in terms of expectations for students and their performance. And I want to say that um, I think the author is trying to take a nuanced approach. I think that uh, there's aspects of which, um, you know, some things in there have ruffled a few feathers. And then I've also heard some people with some really measured perspectives on this article, which has been helpful for me as reading it. Um, I know that the author has definitely been very gracious in dealing with some of the controversial quote So I want to send a huge shout out to the author of the article for that. Very graceful. I'm interested to see how this conversation may develop. Uh, the other one, um, I guess, just came out. Uh, what I don't even know what day it is. I've got April 32nd on my board. Does that mean it's May 2nd? Um, so it must have been yesterday, also from Inside Higher Ed. And the title is Guest Post, Our Grading System Gets an F. And uh, this one has uh, a few sort of, basically I'd say it's sentiment is to talk about the role that the grade of F has on an impact on students. This one's coming from a higher ed perspective. If you were to read it, I would say that you would, as if you're a um, K-12 teacher, I think you'd feel much of the same things. And I would say that the general structure of that one is sort of laying out a few beliefs that are common around why higher ed professors are assigning Fs in various situations, and then sort of giving a more nuanced approach to the story that might enrich that understanding. So definitely interesting articles, um, food for thought. I would recommend a read if you got some time. Another one that's really been sitting with me um, much more than I had expected, I had actually seen someone drop as a quote in the middle of another tweet thread. And the headline uh, comes from a Wall Street Journal article that's the headline is schools are ditching homework and deadlines in favor of equitable grading, which is in quotation marks. And this has been um, tweeted out here by a group called the Fairfax County Parents Association. And they've highlighted one line that's somewhere inside of the article that says there's an apathy that pervades the entire classroom. And their tweet reads, as more schools adopt equity grading, teachers and students have found that the changes demotivated high achievers, led to a lack of accountability and did not prepare kids for the real world. So that's interesting. Um, I've highlighted here on the left two quotes. Um, one quote from a teacher that said, they're relying on children having intrinsic motivation, and that is the furthest thing from the truth for this age group. So I want you to be thinking about these quotes and just the little pieces I'm offering here in the tweet and in these two quotes from the lens of the stories that are being told. And then there's a quote from a student, that one that was um, offered up in the tweet, and it was a student who said, there's an apathy that pervades the entire classroom. So you haven't had a chance to read it. Um, it's up to you completely if you do. I can't say I'm recommending it or not. Um, it definitely gets my, um, my juices going. Uh, I'll leave it at that. 
But if you've got a reaction or you're thinking about the story that's being told by the tweet, by the headline, or by this selection of quotes, drop your, drop your thoughts in the chat. What's going through your mind right now with any of this? I'm going to wait just a moment because I hope you'll have a chance to think about it and reflect on it and just drop a little nugget for us. possible you've got a lot of thoughts and you're trying to figure out how much you can drop into a chat box here. Apathy is real for me in my classroom with many students. Thank you. Any other thoughts folks are having as they look at the little bits offered here on this screen? We got a note that says it's a very pessimistic view of students. Apathy is often a label used to describe what is really chronic stress. That's interesting. Thanks, Liesl. Seems very deficit focused. Well, so I went down a rabbit hole uh, and I'm gonna say that so you don't have to. Ooh, I see a few more coming in. Thanks so much. Um, one thing I'll tell you is from reading the article, um, I would say that the article is attempting to have what kind of looks like an unbiased reporter's view, sharing out some of the issues that some teachers or educators are feeling, also sharing some of the quotes from district folks who might be uh, implementing or promoting this equitable grading kind of practices. But I didn't actually read it as not having a tone or an agenda or at least a leaning, um, even though I think it was trying to appear fair. I will tell you that the teacher quote that I've written there on the left was the prominent tone that opened the article. And that's sort of even the things that were sort of standing up for the reasons for equitable grading, they kind of seemed to be undermined, in my opinion, by some of the language. Uh, here's the part I do not recommend. I went a little further and decided because the article is is interviewing a lot of folks who are in Clark County, Nevada. Um, the teacher and the student quote are both a teacher and student in Nevada. Uh, and the Fairfax County must have picked this up because I, I they also made a reference to Virginia having uh, some of the districts are working on this. And I did go down the rabbit hole and find that Fairfax County Public Schools in October of this past uh, year, this so this current school year, has also implemented some equity grading practices. And so this Fairfax County Parents Association's um, Pinned tweet says that they're a nonpartisan uh, children first organization. Um, and if you were to go and read more of that information, I think you'd find that that's not exactly the case. They're saying that they're trying to remove politics, but it feels pretty political um, to me. And I'm trying to read it with as much generousness as possible. So this is sort of gonna frame our conversation tonight. There's a lot of stories going on right here. We've got, um, in my opinion, we've got stories of uh, politis, polit, politicization, I'm having trouble with that word tonight. We've got sort of stories of the impact of school, of what school should be, of different perspectives on response to students' needs or students' lived experiences. And I think that one of the things we're gonna try and think about tonight are sort of the nuanced differences in all these conversations. So rather than looking at, let's say, these two articles as standing in opposition, 
even though one person may feel strongly with one and not in favor of the other, I'm gonna promote that if we use a lens of story, we can try to get into some of the nuances. So with that same idea in mind of story, here's an image I pulled from um, the NAEP website, I believe it is. And I'd like you just to take a look at the image and jot down in the chat something, a story that you see in this or an understanding or something that sort of you feel is communicated or stands out to you in this image. And as you're pondering that, I'm just going to mention that this is, the graphic almost looks like um, like I made it up, but I'm telling you it's from an official source. Uh, the gray bar acts like a highlighter, improvement in scores, but it seems like the improvement is the same. And there aren't really data about the incline, I noticed that, but it does show an incline. So I'm making some assumptions without um, numbers to attach to it. Um, there's information about the, the change in the deficit or the gap. So overall, I, I see it as sort of a simple graphic. There's not a whole lot of detail to it. It seems to have sort of an intended purpose, which is also indicated in the white print in the blue box at the bottom. I'm not sure if um, how clear that is. Danielle mentions that everyone's improving. I think that would be a, at a glance takeaway. The deficit has decreased, I think is also a takeaway. But there's some other stories here that maybe are like the counter narratives or the sort of like, if you're scratching your head, what are the things that are suggested here that really aren't highlighted? For instance, I'm thinking like, why do we have a gap at all? Is there a, an expectation that this is a growth pattern that we should expect to continue? And if I'm thinking like an algebra teacher, like eventually will these lines intersect? And is that a meaningful number? Um, and when you throw that over the lens of why we have these gaps at all, it, it reminded me of this quote from Goldie Muhammad's first book, Cultivating Genius. Our black students are not failing. It is the systems, instruction, and standards created to monitor, control, and measure a very narrow definition of achievement that are off the mark. It's one of my favorite quotes from that book. And that's sort of one of the, the thoughts that isn't necessarily evident, right? The graphic as I'm sure the purpose of the data collection uh, in the minds of a lot of folks is, is just to sort of report what's happening. But there's an assumption that the gap exists and that the gap makes sense and that it's something that we have and so therefore we're measuring it. Instead of looking maybe more critically at like, wh who's saying there's a gap and against what standard and what if we considered other measures, uh, measures that sort of maybe don't have a, a particular purpose so those are sort of questions about the nuance and story that I want to keep thinking about as we move through. All right, so this is going to be one of our themes. How can the lens of story provide a helpful context for addressing, addressing the issues that we're facing as educators, especially in our current moment where there's just feels like there's noise in every direction? Um, I agree. It's, teaching is difficult right now. Like I'm struggling in my own classes. I'm finding out a lot of things aren't working. I'm thinking a lot about what I'll do differently next week, next year. Um, and yet still like, where am I placing, you know, the blame? Where am I placing my attention? Um, it's just very complex. 
All right, so I'm going to use as sort of vibes to get us working here or the inspiration for sort of the thread of where our talk tonight is this quote from Dr. Gutierrez's introduction to rehumanizing mathematics for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx students. Uh, not only do teachers need to develop specific knowledge of the mathematics they will teach, as I was reading this, I'm like, that's the easy part, right? All of us, every teacher of math is like, yeah, develop specific knowledge of the math. Like, we got that part. Here's the hard part. They also need to connect that knowledge with an understanding of their own privileges, the students they seek to serve, and the social justice goals they hold. And I feel like there's a lot there, and we'll unpack just a bit of it as we go through. We'll use those three, I'll call them bullet points, as sort of our headers for the first chunk here. I'm not good at timing things, so who knows? It may be the whole chunk. Um, but I think there's a lot for us here, especially that last one, the social justice goals they hold. I'm thinking about the curriculum that's adopted in our district. I'm thinking about the push for adapting the curriculum that's adopted in our district that's being done at the district level and at various sites. I'm thinking about my experience over years, years where that same data on the previous slide has been with us. And I'm thinking about these three things and sort of where they've shown up and where they continue to show up and where my colleagues and I and our local department are having these conversations. And frankly, we kind of aren't. So back to this idea of having an understanding of our own privileges, our own stories, backgrounds, biases impact the way we interact with our students. They impact the learning environment that we cultivate, the practices that we're implementing. And Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz from Teachers College, Columbia University has this quote that teaching, uh, that really what teaching is, is to be open to other people's stories. And we're gonna try and run a little video clip. If within a few seconds you don't hear anything, let us know and then I'll just point you to it. We're gonna to go to the 201 mark. I, I have to unmute myself so we can hear the sound. I'm not hearing anything, so I suppose they're not either. All right, sorry about that. No worries, it's a great clip, you can search it. When you search for it, you'll see Dr. Uh, Yolanda Sealy Ruiz's name misspelled. Um, but if you search for her name and archaeology of self, you will definitely, um, tapping, oh, tapping this button, you will see, you'll see that clip come up and it's wonderful. Um, I watch it all the time, mostly as I'm preparing. And I'm just telling you, it'll change your, it'll change your life. This idea of our own privileges is wrapped up in our own stories. And she's essentially saying in this video that if we as educators don't take the time to really understand our own stories, our own histories, and the things that sort of are our value system, then we have no way of knowing the harm that we might impart onto our students. And so this idea of archaeology of the self that she's developing, um, it's just sort of fundamental for, I think, our way of understanding our own privileges. And so I've got this idea that honoring our students' stories requires vulnerability, introspection, and intentional action on our part. And I don't think that's something we're gonna get from our pacing guide. That's not something we're gonna get from our curriculum guides. It's not something I'm getting from our boxed curriculum. And so this is something that we have to do and we have to initiate in conversation with our own, um, members. Thank you for dropping that in the chat, Lee. That link. All right, so the second point, uh, understanding the students we seek to serve. 
Our students, as we know, come to us with their own mathematical identity and agencies. Those are all really complex and they're all personal and individual. They're probably not the same in any pair of students in any given class. They all are also very nuanced. Um, and so I'm wondering what will these look like when they leave our class? And it's a really daunting task to think about it. I know for a lot of years I didn't. Uh, <laughs> taught my lessons, used my notes, answered questions to the best of my ability. I think I was a good educator. I made a lot of good connections, um, but I definitely wasn't thinking about these things. Um, I wasn't thinking about their identities. I wasn't thinking about the identity markers that a lot of students held that weren't mine. I wasn't thinking so much about why was a certain percentage not successful. I would maybe thinking about the majority that were. And so uh, one of the things that um, I've been doing a lot in the last couple of years or so is a lot of student reflections. And when our group came back um, from spring break, we had maybe six weeks or something left in the school year roughly. And I'd asked them to reflect as they sort of do on two questions with some supporting information. And those questions were essentially, what grade do you think you deserve right now, like at this point and justify? And then also what grade are you striving for and justify? And I'll talk more about the ungrading experiences that I've been um, I'll call it experimenting with um, in a little while when we get there. But for now, I just want you in the context of knowing that students are accustomed to having some input on their grade progress in my class. I want to share with you a bunch of responses. And with each one, we'll take just a moment, but think, be thinking about the stories that are told through these responses. Um, I hope they're readable, but I'll kind of read through them. I currently deserve B. I deserve this grade because I do my work, but I'm on my phone a lot, so it can't be an A. I'm striving for an A. I will stop using the phone in class so much. So if anything's jumping out at you, feel free to drop it in the chat or just sort of keep it on the inside if you wish. But be thinking about the stories that are communicated through this. Essentially, I'm calling it a conversation from the student to me. I think they know I'm their audience. Here's another. I deserve an A because I turn in my assignments and I have great behavior. Also, I, I always pay attention and act uh, and I'm not on my phone. Um, striving for an A. Um, here's what I'll do. Turn in my assignments, help others, great behavior, participate. And I try to select a variety, I have a bunch, a variety here that demonstrate what, I, what I'm sort of seeing as some common threads. Um, deserve a C. I'm neither great or bad at math. And you, if you look close, I, I can't tell if you can see here, but I could see on, his, on this student's paper that the word great was um, written over the erasure of the word good. So we changed it from good or bad to I'm neither great or bad at math, but I think I'm good enough to the point where I deserve a C. Striving for a C plus, I'm gonna put in more effort, turn in all my assignments on time. This one says I deserve a B because I'm starting to do my work. Striving for a B, I'm just gonna work. Currently have a C. I haven't done too much work, so I don't feel like I need a better grade. Striving for a C, probably just stick to what I've been doing. I think we just have two more. Currently deserve a B. I think I deserve a, I can't tell if it says I deserve a B and that's a dash or if it says B minus. Our school doesn't have plus or minus grades. We only have letters but a lot of students indicate pluses and minuses on their reflections. Um, so I think it says I deserve a B 
because I do most of my work, but it might not be right. I do try and it does get done. Striving for a B plus or A, I will put all my work in on time. I will also double check, check it so I know it's right. Oh yeah, here's the last one I've got for you. Um, deserve a B. I deserve a B because yeah, I haven't been on time, but I try. I take the bus to school and sometimes I miss it. Math isn't my strong suit. It's hard to get math and for it to stick to my brain. So most of the time I give up, but I think I've been doing better since last year. Striving for an A, I will try to come to class on time. I will try to really try more harder, try harder on the worksheets. I will try to ask for more help. So I think there's a lot of interesting information here. And I don't really think it's about the facts, like what students deserve or what they are going to do to strive. I really think it's about impressions. I think this is an aspect of story. And uh, I'm just gonna do a quick scan through all of these juicy comments here real quick. So I'm looking at one, uh, Dominique said, students are willing to be honest if they know there's room for growth and won't be attacked for their honesty. I do feel like I've worked hard to cultivate that. Um, thanks, Crystal. I love the fact that honor what young people have to contribute when it comes to their own accomplishments. They get to define success. I think that's important. And I don't think that's something that students are often afforded. They don't all give themselves A's, that's the truth. Uh, it, Liesl mentions that it's interesting, none of these responses yet have mentioned learning. And that's one of the things that I noticed is, uh, by and large, there was very little reflection on what students have learned. And I'll have to sort of parse out whether that's because I haven't done enough to cultivate an environment of learning, or whether students just aren't seeing that as sort of in their framework of thinking about success. There was almost exclusively, most papers talked about getting good grades for doing work, turning work in, or improving grades by turning in more work or doing more work. So this idea of doing was definitely a one. And I've got a few takeaways on the next slide. I'm gonna love to get more deeper into these comments later. Um, one of the ones I forgot to write down was, it's very clear to me also that the students have totally differing opinions on what an A is, a B is, and a C is from each other. They don't share a common view of what's meritorious of an A, not just in terms of um, which things to do, but also the degree to which. So the one, the one um, reflection here that said, I deserve a B because I'm starting to do my work implies that the student hadn't been doing a lot of work. But in the student's mind, starting to do the work is like better than a C, but not an A. And I think these are really interesting stories. One of the things that I'm still struggling with and will continue to keep working through um, next year is like, how do we, how do we, or, and do we need to, but also how, if so, how do we find more of a common understanding? Um, but I think it's interesting. Students, not one student, interestingly, ever compared themselves to another student and said, I'm doing these things better than other people, or I see other people doing them better than, than me. So I thought that was really interesting. And here's a couple other um, things uh, that were my takeaways. I think I'm reading all of these uh, as an overall um, portrayal of students adeptly navigating the economy of educational capital. Um, some people call it learning how to play the school game. And um, 
talk to anybody and students are sort of, they're really good at knowing what they have to do in this class and how that may be different from something they have to do in another class. But that idea of recognizing that there is educational capital in terms of the things we do and the payoff we get for it in grades and then how that may change from class to class. Um, students, the second one I got is students express beliefs that mirror messages they've received. So the students who says, um, I can't have an A because I'm on my phone. And the student who said, I deserve an A. And part of the justification was they're not on their phone. That sounds like messaging that they've probably received from adults or from teachers. Um, maybe they personally think it's a distraction also. Um, it's hard to say. But a lot of those things kind of sounded like teachery comments, or at least sort of the way you might um, acquire them into your own belief system after years and years in school. The third one to me feels contradictory a little bit, at least somewhat at odds with the first two, that students innately believe that progress is always possible. So there were very few people that didn't see their grade possibly improving, even in the last five or six weeks of the semester. Some people had it changing from a C to an A, some people from one letter to another letter. The ones who thought it should stay the same were happy where they were for the most part. Um, no one had said, well, I don't really think my grade, there's time to improve. So I think that's interesting. I think that a lot of classroom environments and a lot of, um, let's say, syllabus uh, details make it seem like it may be too late. And obviously, we've all had experiences either feeling that way or um, with, with our own classes. I, I definitely used to use a stronger point system where it was that way at some point. It was not possible to pass. But my students generally seem to believe that it's never too late. The progress is possible. They may miss a lot of school, but now they're here and now they're doing their work. To them, that feels valuable. And I think that's really interesting. And then overall, the students are filtering um, the things that are happening in their classes through their own values. And so if they think it's important to do, to get a C, um, but not to get a B, then they're going to decide what it takes to get a C, and that's what they're doing. And part of that navigating the economy is if they're doing what they think is right, and it isn't getting them there, then they'll do some more. Um, and I noticed some students will say, oh, I backed off a little bit because I was happy with my grade. But now that I see it's going down, then um, you know I'm starting to think about it again. So I think all of these are really interesting thoughts. And it tells me that this idea of honoring our students' stories requires an investment of our time and our priorities. If we aren't asking and if we aren't listening and having the opportunities to interact with these thoughts, then how do we know? And what are we missing? All right, so finally, the social justice goals we hold, that third one. I'm wondering what social justice goals we do hold. Please drop yours in the chat. I'm wondering where they manifest in our practice. I'm thinking about in my own experience, like who are my partners? I certainly gain a lot from all y'all on Twitter. Um, sometimes I have more Twitter homies to break these things down with, some locally and some abroad, like far away, um, but not maybe necessarily as many in my building. And this one's personal, so you may not wish to type something in the chat, but I'm thinking about the social justice goals that we hold. Here's an image um, that's been rendered by someone who was referring to Rico Gutstein's model of teaching mathematics for social justice. The same image is um, actually shows up in um, 
the recent publication, I'm just going to flip here real quick because um, the title's long, High School Mathematics Lessons to Explore, Understand, and Respond to Social Injustice. We'll go back to that. Um, and interestingly, the two images are rendered differently, but the social justice pedagogical goals, reading the world with mathematics, writing the world with mathematics, developing positive cultural and social identities. And then the mathematics pedagogical goals is reading the mathematical world. And I like that juxtaposition of the first two goals in each column. Succeeding academically in the traditional sense. We know that's important. Success in school matters for opportunities. The system exists. And changing one's orientation to mathematics. And I'm still trying to think about if these things are important and we need to attend to them, then how are we doing it? So on page 22 of this book, um, chapter one, they're talking about teaching math for social justice. And they mentioned these two goals, freedom from oppression through the development of mathematical literacy and freedom to act upon and impact the world through personal and social transformation. And it gets me thinking that for many students, school mathematics is an oppressive system. So if our goal is to be thinking about social justice as goals for students, oftentimes I'm like, how can I take my upcoming unit on quadratics and find a way to bring in a nice social justice component? And I think we often struggle with that idea of taking our curriculum, taking our pacing guide and thinking about how we can add a layer of it. To me, this sounds, I'm gonna go back to this slide for a minute. These two bullet points to here to me don't sound like a lesson or a lesson add-on as much as they kind of sound like a unit or a framework. And that's not something that I have readily available to me. It's not something that's created and ready to go. It may be in some school sites or districts, um, but in the ones I've been in here in Southern California, um, it hasn't been. And so I'm trying to rethink some of these things. And I'm trying to also think that they don't necessarily have to deal with larger crises in the world that adults are thinking about. How can we bring these relevant to what's happening in the lives of our own students? And one of the things that's happening in the lives of all of our students is school. So I feel like there's places to address this, even in the context of the students' lived experiences in school. So then about grading, I'll share a little bit of my experience here. Um, and I'm not here to tell you how to grade or what you should be doing differently than you are. I have so many questions, but I did embark two or three years ago uh, on an ungrading journey that I'm still on. And I was willing to bumble and stumble my way through it to try everything and anything without knowing how it was going to work, without being fully prepared, without knowing the ifs, ands, and evens in the questions, but just to start seeing so I could learn from students, and I'm learning a lot. Um, I'm going to share just briefly, for the sake of time, a little bit about some of the successes and flops. I definitely noticed that my students are less stressed, and they report it in surveys and in other things, Google Forms and stuff. They report being less stressed in my class. I also was curious, like, are they just unstressed about school? And the students expressed having high stress generally, more or less continual worry about their grade performance in school, but also feeling a lot less of it in my class. And that's awesome, but also like, why? Like, maybe I'm not 
providing enough rigor, whatever that is. So um, I just offer that to you as the ungrading experiences that I've been working on this year and last year, especially, are providing an environment of less stress. I think that's interesting. Um, I definitely see increased engagement for learning. Not everybody's engaged in learning. Some students aren't engaging in the learning process. And so I'm thinking about why is that the case? Um, I have very much reduced striving for points. I still have students asking how many points is this worth? Or if I don't do this, will I lose points? Or if I'm absent and I don't have the activity, will I lose points? We don't have points. Um, but some students are still sort of in a point earning mode. Um, but a lot of students I can see are not talking about points in the way that they used to earlier in the year. If they're engaging in an activity, they're more or less in a learning space. Along with that, I'm also seeing um, more people willing to make mistakes, more people willing to adapt to some tasks when they're not sure, to put down partial things, engaging in more conversation or asking for more help. I think a part of it, and not everybody is, um, and not all the time, but I think it's in greater in some ways. And I think part of that is because um, they're not feeling like there's points on the line. So that's pretty cool. Um, also, the off-task behavior is more evident. Um, because there aren't necessarily points lost for not doing something. Some of the students who may have historically completed things, like we read in those comments, doing things um, to keep their grade up, aren't maybe feeling the same pressure. And so I can see off-task behavior more clearly. So this is a lot of food for thought for me. Um, along with those sort of observations about student work quality, I'll call them, I definitely feel like I'm building stronger relationships. Um, more attentive, one of the pluses for me in this ungrading experience has been that um, I'm rethinking the things that are important and the things that we should be doing in class because I'm spending less time thinking about the gradebook component of those things. Um, so that's been helpful for me too and definitely a place for a lot of growth. All right, so um, Goldie Mohammed's new book, Unearthing Joy, She's got a call for humanizing pedagogies as a section in her introduction. And I actually wanted to read you the larger passage, but I didn't want to type it all on the screen. So I'm going to do that. We need humanizing pedagogies that center the genius, justice, joy, love, and humanity of our children. That means we must search for and unearth ourselves and search for people, places, things, histories, movements, events, and moments that we have failed to teach because we didn't learn them ourselves. We can no longer have hidden figures. We must uncover them because we need their genius and their narratives to make us all better. The stories we teach matter. And so as I've been sort of reflecting on the narratives that we're seeing about grades popping up in various news articles, blogs, some in an educational space, some in more of a public space. As I've been thinking about Dr. Gutierrez's um, three bullet points of the way we need to connect our mathematical knowledge to those components of understanding our own privileges, knowing the students we serve, and our social justice goals, I really am gravitating towards Goldie Mohammed's work um, and especially this idea of all of these things we see on the screen and that those stories matter. 
And I know that for a lot of years, I was the center of my classroom, even when I was claiming my classroom to be student-centered or doing more group work. I still knew that I was the center. And I don't think that um, I necessarily was um, ready to admit that or, or see it for what it was. But I knew that my humor was the linchpin and my quick wit was a way to redirect attention. And my lessons were crafted in such a way where students you know, were able to be uh, functional in their groups or whatever. There was so much about my story that was at the center. And I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't even know that there were other stories that I needed to hear. And I had, I've always had good positive rapport. Like that's always been a compliment. Um, and I've been close with a lot of students, right? So I'm not saying that, I mean, I mean, I don't know exactly what it was. I just know that I was definitely lacking consciousness for it. Okay, so for those who are not familiar with Mohammed's work, I just want to share briefly with you her culturally, um, let's see if I can remember it here now that I'm nervous, uh, culturally and historically responsive literacy model. I think it should be C-H-R-L. I can't remember. Um, I'm probably missing a letter or a word there somewhere. In any case, um, just briefly, her research is rooted in 18th century Black literary societies, particularly in the North. And studying a lot of that, she compared it with sort of the educational experience that we have, the things that we learn in school about the Black experience in America in those earlier years, and how those two stories are not the same. And in studying these early Black scholars in these literary societies, she identified these five pursuits. She's calling them literacy, but she also says, this is just education. And so they're applicable in all of our domains. And so these five pursuits are identity, skills, intellect, criticality, and joy. And she comments in her book that her books that skills is essentially where our curriculum usually lives the skills we want students to do. Intellect is that aspect of applying those skills. So maybe we have some intellect in our application or conceptual understanding in the mathematics classroom, but we don't really have curriculum that are provided to us that are rooted in identity, even though it's such an important piece. And even though we've got books like Catalyzing Change and, all, and a lot of other recent publications that are fronting this need to address identity, it's still not really built into our curriculum. Criticality, this idea of recognizing systems of power, systems of oppression, um, ways that those dynamics play out in society and people's individual lives is really important. We talk about it all the time in life, in the news, but we don't really have it built into our curriculum. And this idea of joy, of realizing your purpose, of celebrating that elevated identity. Um, and so it's really speaking to me. I'm loving it. I'm trying to think a lot about it. Oops. I was hoping this wouldn't show that bottom part right away, but hey, here we get what we get. So let's be thinking about this. I'm just gonna, oh, here, there we go. <laughs> Don't look at that other thing. <laughs> so I wanna be thinking about uh, Dr. Muhammad's words here of centering genius, justice, joy, love, and humanity in a typical mathematical context. Let's take something like the Pythagorean theorem, right? So go with what's in your brain from the curriculum that you use or you've developed what are what aspects maybe some of y'all have that you're doing to sort of build in some of these components so it's not just finding missing sides of triangles if you've got anything um drop that in the chat let's hear some ideas and then i'll share with you that little image i was trying to keep hidden in just a bit
thanks Rebecca for pointing out there's a middle school version of that book as well uh, it's got some awesome um, activities in it for sure and I believe there's also um, a lower elementary book as well All right, well, our time is fleeting, so you, you may be thinking, you may be typing, you may just be reflecting, but here's just me jotting down some ideas, uh, some stuff I'd like to keep developing. So this one I'm actually thinking of as a lesson, but maybe built into a larger unit. I don't think that every lesson we can necessarily do all these. And an upper one. Thanks, Nehi. That's right, there's four. Um, we've got the white one, and then we got a lot of new ones that are, that are uh, more colorful covers. All right, so I'm thinking of maybe an identity goal as like students will learn about the cultural genius of early non-Western societies who advanced mathematics. That might be particularly relevant to students who don't necessarily identify in the same way that I do culturally or ethnically. Maybe students who are getting a lot of messages that mathematics was that, that we study or that we know about or that we hear about was developed by these guys in Europe, by these guys in Greece. Um, we, our students probably don't much have much awareness that math is still a topic of study and that like lots of people are doing. Um, but the Pythagorean theorem is one of those places, like we've even got a name, right? Uh, skills, students will understand and analyze the Pythagorean theorem and solve problems. If this is a high school level, you might build proof of the Pythagorean into that skill. Intellect students will learn about the histories of Pythagoras, the Pythagoreans, and the evidence of understanding and proof of the Pythagorean theorem predating Pythagoras. Uh, there's a good question here in the chat, and I'm going to do my best to address that. Um, criticality. Students will learn about mathematical discoveries from around the world and consider why they are not highlighted in standard curriculum. So why do we call it Pascal's Triangle if it existed before Pascal and in other places? And they have the um, there's a different names for the Pythagorean theorem. There's earlier Babylonian proofs than Pythagoras, and a lot of these things could be really interesting. Uh, art for sure, yeah, and to build joy. Um, I wish I had a quote handy. I read one and then I didn't mark it, but also I've got like so many little tabs. This is my easy one. My blue one's got like so many tabs, I can't find the quotes that I marked to find later. But part of that idea was joy it wasn't just like feeling happy or having fun. It was that sort of an inner joy um, that we don't often talk much about um, in our educational settings, at least not that I can draw an easy, quick answer from, but this idea that sort of, I think of it as sort of not just, yes, culminating more in identity, but also sort of culminating all of these things, right? All of these things as sort of growing the person in their literacy or education, I feel like inspires a joy. It reinforces us. So I think that identity is a big piece and that brings joy, especially if you are let's say a student with Arabic roots and you can be looking at earlier civilizations that aren't often talked about in school and see connections to your histories in there. Uh, so I think there's a lot of aspects of joy that sort of are an umbrella um, for all of those, those other four pursuits coming to fruition. I hope as a simple answer um, that helps a little bit. I see some awesome stuff in the chat. Thanks everybody for sharing that. All right, so I'm thinking here that where we focus our instructional time, and I'm thinking now about those five pursuits as a unit design framework or a lesson design framework, um, at least at some points, right, where we can build it in, I think that communicates our value system to students. So back to this idea of grades, 
if the things that we're sort of highlighting as impacting their progress, their success, come back down to our standard measures of tasks and homework, quizzes, tests, and a grade book, then even those other things we're doing to sort of be more culturally responsive or to have more experiences or to work on students' identity and agency in mathematics, are we really communicating those as valuable or do our students sort of take them as fluff that maybe this teacher does if they're not really part of what appears to be our value system to students? So I think about that. All right, so let's talk briefly about assessment in our final minutes here. Um, I heard Nick Covington on a podcast. It was an older episode, but I had missed it in the summer. And he made a reference to this uh, statement he refers to as an agitation. Uh, but, you know, he really thinks it's interesting. What if we made a better world and it didn't raise test scores? And here in testing season, I'm feeling it. Um, I'm exhausted from tests. This week, they're testing in English, and I'm still exhausted. You can tell me why that's happening. I don't even know. Uh, but I also worry about them. I worry about their validity. I worry about how students will interpret their results. I worry about how the community will interpret their results. I worry about how I'll interpret their results. How will I, will I rethink some of my other practices that I have thought were important if my test scores aren't good enough? We just live so much in this idea of assessment and then the results of that assessment as a measure. Um, I don't know, man. I got a lot in my head. So I'm wondering what would assessment look like if we were using Dr. Muhammad's five pursuits? And so I got this quote here from Reimagining the Mathematics Classroom by Ye Ellis and Cohen Hurtado. Uh, what purpose does assessment serve? It's not only the teacher who can engage in interpreting assessment data and guiding future actions. It's even more powerful when students develop habits of doing so. And so I'm thinking here about assessment. And I'm thinking about how I could use that five-part um, CHRE framework of Dr. Muhammad's and how would that build into assessment? And I find myself getting stuck because I'm somehow conflating that with how will I enter grades in a grade book? What percentage of each of those pursuits will matter in the grade reporting? And I really need to separate that because assessment for um, Grade reporting or evaluation is a whole different thing than assessment for learning. And if we want to be the teachers that are inspiring our students to be more independent, um, more self-affirming, to build up those habits, especially the ones that will prepare them to be successful in future educational experiences, then this quote really speaks to me that we need to be finding ways for students to be developing these self-assessment habits. It's hard to do though, right? It's really hard to do. Um, I wasn't trained on it. <laughs> I don't think I ever did it. Aside from some reflections maybe, I'm not sure how much I get there. So thinking more about, let's say that Pythagorean lesson, how would we assess these things? And I had a slide that didn't make it in uh, before the final print, but I'm, some of y'all have probably seen it. It's sort of a triangle of for assessment and there's these three ideas and there's a word that's escaping me right now but we've got this idea of performances uh communication or uh communicate conversations yeah performances conversations and observations and i'm thinking if we're using assessment as a tool for learning as a tool for reflection and growth and separating this idea of the grading aspect of it then i think that we can actually do all of these really well we can do it in seeing students talking about their identity growth. 
We can obviously check skills and intellect in some of the usual ways we would on our typical instruments. But getting kids talking about math with a critical lens, like when do we have a chance to assess that? We wouldn't even think that was an appropriate test question. How do you mark a kid's grade down if they didn't do well on that? But I think it's important. So I wanna just about wrap up here with this idea of how would our assessment practices change if we didn't have to assign grades? And we do, right? We're still in a society where we do. Uh, we always will be, perhaps. But I think that we can start to think about assessment from this lens. Separate the idea of grading. Think as little about the need to put something in a gradebook as possible. Maybe there's a space for more collaborative grading through conversations, shared goal setting, and those kinds of things. Maybe we'll start to see students' performance differently, a more asset-focused lens, if they can pick up on strengths that aren't necessarily only tied to their skills. I think that we can make some significant changes. So in our final couple of minutes here, I just wanted to share briefly some of the experiences I've been having implementing portfolios. They have been a mess because I've been learning like everything else the hard way. Try it and then when something doesn't go smoothly, make notes. Um, but I have a couple examples here that were cool. You can't really see the image, but in this particular one, uh, the students were looking at one image repeatedly and the, um, I don't know, what, what would you call it? The uh, learning goal for the day was something like describing growing patterns with color, words, and then ultimately we added into that quantitative um, expressions, but that part we didn't start with. We started just with words and color. And so you can't really tell, but this first one, the student describes this as rectangles and they're all pink. And then the second one, they're calling it uh, squares with a rec with a row on top. So you've got a square with a pink row and a purple square with a pink row. And then this last one they're calling picture frames where the first two are sort of trivial, but it, once it gets to the third and bigger, you'd have the outer perimeter would be pink and everything in the middle is purple. And so it was sort of an aspect of not just finding a pattern, but looking for multiple patterns. And the reflection that's sort of here in the student's work is something that I didn't get just from what was written on the sheet. This conversation probably wouldn't have even happened in person, but in this opportunity to sort of reflect on something in an activity of their choosing, um, I got a lot of information about the student, a lot more understanding of their learning journey and process than I had before. And for me, that was really rich. And that was something that needs to be, it's important. I think it needs to factor into their progress, growth, even their evaluation. But my typical instrument, including the activity itself, didn't capture all that. Um, this one, I had a real hard time putting it in here as an example for so long because I struggled to understand it. And I think this will probably be about the last one we'll look at, even though I have some more in here. Uh, so they were given a function, um, and this particular student apparently used Desmos to analyze the function, to find the zeros of the function, and to talk a little bit about where the graph was bouncing or crossing. There's no social justice in this lesson, but in terms of skills, that's the stuff we're looking at. And I struggled for so long because the information they've typed makes sense to me. It's pretty articulate. I feel like the student has a pretty good understanding or a solid understanding, but this graph was super throwing me off. It doesn't do what it says it's supposed to do. And it doesn't really look exactly like a polynomial. It looks polynomial-ish. And so I struggled for a while and it actually communicated a message to me at first that like there's a disconnect in the student's thinking. I finally figured it out. 
they took a screenshot of a Desmos blank graph and then they used like Google's drawing tools with a curve where you can like tap, 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 and then it'll curve where you tap to create something that kind of did it. And I tried it. I tried it to do it well. I tried to do it matching the zeros where they're supposed to be. And my graph looked pretty much like this. So <laughs> that was something I definitely learned the hard way. All right, I have a few others in here we won't stop to talk about, but they all show lots of different things. I'll just mention here that these ones I learned that my students by and large do not like doing digital portfolios, which is how I required them at the first semester. I came back from winter break and thought, why am I not getting better ones? And so I opened it up for notebook portfolios and people really dug on that idea. And I got a lot more contributions that were a lot richer um, with students that were more interested in doing it that way. So I just wanna mention here as we wrap up that our students know so much more than our traditional assessments capture. And that's even when we're only sort of focused on a skills lens. So where do we go from here? Um, my only advice is to try and think about how we can diminish the role of grading as much as possible, diminish the points-focused or grade-focused environment that our students are accustomed to. I am trying to do that, and my students still have it as a framework after all these years. Where we go from here, I don't know, but I know we'll figure it out together. Uh, let's keep in touch. Um, thank you all so much for being here. I'm super grateful for the opportunity and for your participation, and everybody have a wonderful night. Thank you everyone for being here and thank you very much for sharing with us, Nolan, giving us some great things to, to think about. Um, we have two webinars remaining, uh, May 16th and May 30th. On the 16th, I'll be having a conversation with Peter Lilzadal on building thinking classrooms six years later. I encourage you to email any questions you might have for Peter because it's gonna be an interview format. Email those questions to globalmathdepartment at gmail.com or tag us with your questions on Twitter. And then on May 30th, we'll be having Howie Waugh for our final session. His topic is finding joy in math, something that we've been talking about uh, this evening. We hope to see many of you for both of these final two webinars. Thanks again, everyone. And thanks again, Nolan. <laughs>